At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Today we'll talk about Joe Biden's first week as president. Later in the show, we'll speak with John Nichols. He says Biden knows he has to work harder and faster than any president since Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Biden doesn't have a hundred days to launch his initiatives. He's got to set the tone in something more like 10. But first, Biden and the pandemic. Thousands of Americans are dying every day from COVID-19. The national death toll will reach half a million sometime next month, and a new, more infectious variant of the virus is spreading quickly. So the pandemic poses the most urgent challenge to Joe Biden's first days in office. For comment, we turn to Greg Gonsalves. He works on epidemiology at the Yale School of Public Health. He's been an AIDS activist for 30 years he writes regularly for The Nation about the pandemic and also for The Atlantic. And he's also a MacArthur Fellow. Greg Gonsalves, welcome back. Thanks, John. Well, Biden has called for what he calls a full-scale wartime effort. He wants $350 million in direct funding. Now he's aiming for 150 million vaccine doses administered in his first 100 days. Um, it seems right now like we're not ha getting enough vaccine produced. Uh, what What is Joe Biden doing to increase production? And is he doing enough? Well, first of all, we're, what, six days into the into the new administration. Um, we give him a few more days before we can come <laughs> okay. down and make a ton of breath. Okay. The important thing is that we didn't have a... Uh, Operation Warp Speed for vaccine scale-up and distribution. And those chickens are coming home to roost because a couple of things. One is we don't have the frontline capacity to, to put needles into everybody's arms. And we're starting to see um, places around the world, uh, uh, excuse me, places around the United States scrambling uh, to, to get vaccines out to people um, because there's been sort of interruptions in the supply chain, although more vaccines are supposed to be coming along from the companies any day now. Um, and so President Biden wants to uh, have 150 million people vaccinated during his first 100 days. But we're something like, what, 20 million right now? I can't remember what the number of people vaccinated to date is. Um, but we have a steep uh, hill to climb to get everybody vaccinated in the United States. Michelle Goldberg at the New York Times op-ed page reported that she was told Pfizer and Moderna would produce 200 million doses enough for 100 million people each to get two shots by the end of March. That sounds very good. It, it is very good. But remember, we need all the other sort of human capital to, to be able to do this. We need the sort of other kinds of equipment, syringes, um, the PPE, and all of this needs to go out way into the periphery, right? You know, it's one thing to be in a big city in California or New York or even in a small city like New Haven, where I am, um, the rubber is going to meet the road in the places where it's harder to vaccinate people because uh, the infrastructure is, is, is less robust. Think of rural 
uh, counties in the American South or, or, or the Southwest. Uh, think of poorer cities uh, or towns uh, in states that have had sort of crumbling public health infrastructure for many decades um, and, and have you know one or two public health workers for several counties which they have to cover. So there's a lot of sort of challenges that are beyond the sort of um, little vaccine that's in the vial that Moderna and Pfizer are going to produce for us. Let's talk about what it would take to get more people vaccinated. I live in L.A. County, the biggest county in the nation, 10 million people. We have more than a million confirmed cases. They're now saying that maybe a third of the population, more than 3 million people, have been infected by the virus in the last year. Uh, and right now, the county has started running five drive-up mega sites, starting with Dodger Stadium, which right now is vaccinating, I think it's 8,000 people a day, and they want to add a few more thousand to that. Um, there are hospitals and clinics doing vaccinations. The county site lists dozens of grocery store pharmacies that are doing vaccinations, but still the present pace, even in L.A. County, is not very good. Uh we won't get 6 million people vaccinated in L.A. County this year. That would be 60% would be vaccinated by the beginning of 2022. What would it take to do this better? So there is a piece on the New York Times front page, webpage today, an interview with Vivek Murthy, who's our new Surgeon General, um, with Ezra Klein. And he says, we need to treat this as the emergency that it is. Reading another article a couple of days ago, how... Um, Mitt Romney and Democrats Joe Manchin and uh, independent Angus King are thinking, oh, you know, why do we need such a big pandemic relief bill um, after we spent so many trillions of dollars on pandemic relief over 2020? That's exactly the thinking that's going to keep us from vaccinating everybody who needs to get vaccinated. If we're nickel and diming ourselves over a bill which is dwarfed by sort of defense appropriations every year, for instance, we're, we've got the wrong mindset. We should be thinking of all means necessary to get people vaccinated, these mega clinics. And, you know, rather than having the National Guard clear the Capitol, we should have them <laughs> clear the vaccine stocks, right? Yeah. To have them on every street corner offering vaccines to people. I mean, not every street corner, but to, to make sure it's not just Dodger Stadium that's, you know, for the least populous county in California, they have their own mega site. Um, so even if they have a, a county population of 2,000 people, they should be able to get vaccinated too without getting in a car or getting on public transport to get their vaccine. It means we're going to need a huge cadre of people to do this. I mean, I've talked to you before about sort of needing a new deal for public health and a community health, a public health jobs corps. Those people could start to do vaccine education, vaccination itself, vaccine follow-up. There's lots of things we can do. We also need to think about public production. 200 million doses, great. We need more than that. And that's a drop in the bucket for the rest of the world. Moderna can't do it on its own. What we should think about, and friends at a group called Prep for All in New York have discussed this about public production of vaccines, particularly the mRNA vaccines, which seem to be at least uh, more effective than other ones coming down the pike, like Merck's vaccine, which just went out of research and development because they didn't they had disappointing results. So we should be scaling up through the Defense Production Act, through public production, rolling out the National Guard to help with distribution. You know, think of this as a national disaster, and we need to roll into across the country to vaccinate with an idea like this this is the emergency that it is. And then there's uh, testing. We need faster testing. We need to be able to identify people who are infectious right away. How are we doing on testing? 
we we're still dragging our feet on antigen testing, which is what I was talking about in the article. So if 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 you go into the hospital with COVID symptoms, you're going to be given a PCR test. It's exquisitely sensitive. Tell you if you have any virus in you. Out in the in the community, what we're really looking for are those people who are shedding lots of virus or highly contagious. Antigen tests are not super um, sensitive in terms of being able to find every lingering case of, of COVID-19, but they're going to find the people who are most infectious. You know, people like Michael Mina at Harvard Public School of Public Health talked about the need for massive, massive campaigns to do antigen testing around the country. We still haven't done that. And then the, the saddest tales I've heard is several public health departments are ramping down their testing efforts because they have to ramp up their vaccination efforts. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you have two people in your county health department and you want to vaccinate, you got to make a choice. Are they going to test or are you going to vaccinate? And so that's where we are. We're in that sort of Sophie's choice of vaccinate or test in many places around the country that don't have sort of gigantic public health departments like LA or, or New York, for instance. And we've continued to have this dilemma of the people who have to go to work where they can easily get exposed to the virus. I'm I'm retired from teaching. It's easy for me to stay home, work at home. Most of my friends work at home, but there's millions of people just in LA County who, you know, the, we know the the essential workers. They stock the grocery shelves. They drive the delivery trucks. They work in the meatpacking plants. Uh, Joe Biden is asking Congress to give everybody. $2,000, or maybe it's $1,400 more since they already got $600 last time around. That's only the beginning of what they need. We, he's also ordered OSHA, the Occupational Health and Safety Administration, to develop and enforce safety rules to protect from COVID exposure. You'd think this would have been, you know, one uh, Occupational Health and Safety 101, but it's news in America that OSHA is going to come up with standards to protect uh, workers. Then the $2,000 doesn't seem like enough. So what, what should we be doing for the people who have to be out there working? First of all, the people who are out there working have subsidized our ability to stay home. They're the people who go to work to stock the grocery shelves, to pick vegetables, to put vegetables into boxes or meatpacking plants who are doing frontline public transportation work, for instance. And so our lives have been subsidized by these individuals who are at high risk of contracting uh, SARS-CoV-2. So we owe them a great debt of gratitude. And our debt of gratitude is that we're haggling about $1,400, $2,000. You know, I don't know, for a family of four in LA County or in New York, that disappears pretty quickly. If you want people to be able to stay home, you're going to have to go on something like pandemic pay, where you're saying, you know what, we're going to pay everybody to stay home in the in the U.S. for three weeks and make it possible for people to social distance like many of us are and have been doing for the past year. Again, there's this sort of notion that I've got mine. Tough luck, you don't have yours. You know, the members of Congress have gotten their jabs. They've gotten their vaccinations. Um, they're well protected in most cases in their lives. But, they're, you know, again, we're having these bizarre debates about, you know, being too generous with the American people to provide support to, to individuals and also small businesses to to weather the storm. And so $1,400, $2,000 is a drop in the bucket for most people. Let's just get busy and, and try to figure out a real way to support people to be able to social distance. If, if, they, if people even get sick, they may not have the ability to isolate because they live in a one-room or two-room apartment. I'm giving them the ability to, to take over a hotel room so they can separate from their family to keep their family safe. There's lots of things we could do tomorrow, but we sort of, you know, we abandoned hope in 2020 and now Biden has to sort of 
include all together from scratch with a fractious Congress, even members of his own party who are, who are wary of spending too much on, on, on the pandemic. So this is pretty much the list that you outlined before Biden took office. Now that he's been in office for a week, is there anything else that we need to be thinking about? The question of the new variants was not apparent in December when I wrote the article for The Nation. There's a question about whether these variants are going to change the shape of the pandemic, both in terms of the epidemiology of it and its uh, their effectiveness against their their ability to sort of withstand the acquired immunity that vaccination provides. So we're in a, in a more dangerous situation, potentially with these viral variants, which seem to be more infectious, meaning that one exposure, which might have given you one dose of virus today, now gives you two doses of virus, because there's just more coming out of people's respiratory effluent or whatever we want to call it. So it makes put us in a more serious epidemiological situation. I think the question that that sort of is now in my mind is about what happens to the rest of the world. Um, we're talking about you know sixty percent of LA County being vaccinated by the end of twenty twenty two. Did you say or twenty twenty one? We won't have sixty percent vaccinated until twenty twenty two. Well, you know. Um, right now, WHO is saying, you know, COVAX, the, the, the big global sort of COVID vaccine enterprise is talking about a goal of vaccinating 20 to 25, 27 percent of everybody in the developing world and research poor countries this year. Really? That's not equitable, but it's also pennywise pound foolish because, again, you know, these variants are emerging because we're letting viral replication sort of run unimpeded across the world so the virus gets to evolve. Um, on its own terms. If we start vaccinating small proportions of people, you're going to see emergence of viral variants happen as a matter of, of sort of evolutionary consequence. So the the question of worldwide scale up of vaccination and vaccines is becoming probably one of the, probably the biggest challenge of our times. And it's not just about the US. The The fact is that if we can't get rid of this virus everywhere, it's always going to have a home and a place to thrive. And so it's in our own interest to figure out how not to scale up for L.A. County and for New Haven County here in Connecticut, but for the rest of the world, because otherwise we're going to be living with this virus for, for, for not one year, two years, but potentially over a decade. It's not just about the U.S. Greg Gonsalves writes for TheNation.com. Greg, thanks for talking with us today. Thanks, John. Joe Biden knows he must work harder and faster than any president since FDR, and he doesn't have 100 days to launch his initiatives. He's got to set the tone in more like 10. That's what John Nichols says. Of course, he's national affairs correspondent for the nation and author of the book, The Fight for the Soul of the Democratic Party, The Enduring Legacy of Henry Wallace's Anti-Fascist, Anti-Racist Politics. We reached him today. At home in Madison, John, welcome back. It's an honor to be with you, my friend. Well, we're at the end of week one of the Biden presidency. I guess you could call it the best week in four years. Uh, there were all those executive orders undoing the worst of Trump's executive orders. Already, Biden has stopped construction of the border wall, ended the Muslim travel ban, canceled the Keystone XL pipeline, rejoined the Paris Climate Accord and rejoined the World Health Organization. But of course, we have this double crisis, the pandemic and the economic collapse. And 
Uh, we need to start with the pandemic economic stimulus, $1.9 trillion, starting with that additional $1,400 check, COVID relief for all families. Uh, where do we stand on that today? Not where we should be. As you point out, the executive orders have been aggressive, well-drawn, appropriate. Uh, I give Joe Biden a lot of credit for that. And every indication when I talk to Biden administration folks and others is that they're going to keep right on going. They'll keep doing executive orders wherever they can uh, at a very, very rapid rate, more than any new president in the history of the country. However, you do reach the point where you need money uh, because executive orders can't allocate money. They can maybe maybe move a little bit of it around, but you've got to get the Congress into action. And as of now, the Congress has been slow to act. There, there uh, certainly is a sense of urgency on the part of many Democrats, uh, no question of that, and maybe even a few Republicans, but they haven't come together in a coherent way. And instead, there's been a wrangling over organization of the Senate. There's been a lot of talk about impeachment, which, by the way, I think is entirely appropriate to have the trial and to go forward with it. But there hasn't been that, that, that kind of fast movement and in fact, what we're starting to see is a growing number of Republican members uh, start to object to the ambitions of the $1.9 trillion stimulus to say that they think it's too much, that it isn't targeted, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Every excuse you can imagine. I do think that Biden's got a fight on his hands there. He can get this. He can get it. But it's not going to come easily. The additional $1,400 has massive popular support. Biden wants to not send the $1,400 up as a single thing that could pass tomorrow and get checks into people's hands right away. He wants to combine it with a lot of other things that Republicans are less enthusiastic about uh, passing, in, including uh, hundreds of billions of dollars for state and local governments, increasing the minimum wage to $15 an hour, spending more money on schools, on vaccine production, on increased testing. We desperately need all this stuff right now, but it looks like the strategy that the Democrats are taking is going to delay all this until we get to that thing called budget reconciliation. You are correct. And uh, look, this is sort of a, a really terrible situation to be in because there's no question that actually it's not the $1,400. It's needed. Frankly, we need a $2,000 check and we don't need it just for, you know, instance, we need it as Ro Khanna and Tim Ryan, the congressman from Ohio, Ro Khanna from California, Tim Ryan from Ohio have proposed since last April that you do 2000 a month for those who are in need and frankly, uh, in a relatively universal model because it's, it's absurd not to. This is the way that A, you stimulate the economy, B, uh, you help people to feed their families, keep in their homes, Just, you address so many of the broader challenges. So we're still kind of nickel and diming it on, on the, even the $2,000, as you say, note the 1400 The conundrum here is that, that what Biden and to a lesser extent Schumer are saying is not irrational. While you need the, the $2,000 checks and you probably could get them or get some variation thereon uh, relatively quickly, uh, if you de-link that from the rest of the package, 
you end up in a situation where it is clear that Mitch McConnell and the Republicans and some of your more centrist Democrats might start to, to refuse. And we cannot afford to have local and state governments collapse. That's the danger that, that's really kind of at the heart of this thing. You can probably get pandemic money, you know, and money for vaccinations. That's going to be a fight, but you could probably get that. But getting the funding for state and local governments has been just a terrible challenge. It's absurd that it is. And I cannot begin to emphasize to you how important that is, because it's state and local government that provides the frontline services and, and a tremendous amount of the public health uh, programs and, and public health delivery around the country. So we're in a really tough bargaining position here. Uh, and I doubt that Biden and Schumer are going to cut loose the $2,000 or the $1,400, whatever amount you go to. Uh, and that's frustrating and it's challenging. I don't think they have a lot of time to play around with this, though. And so I think we're getting very quickly uh, to the point where Joe Biden should go on television nationally, do an address to the nation, separate and apart from his inaugural address of just a few days, and say, look, you know, we are in an urgent circumstance. Here's why. Here's what I think we need to do. And, you know, I always say he should borrow a page from Franklin Roosevelt, who uh, obviously did the fireside chats. But frankly, when I'm talking about an address to the nation, I'm borrowing a page from Ronald Reagan. That's something that Reagan was very good at. Uh, and it's why, as a president who didn't have the best position in Congress, remember, he had a Democratic House and a Republican Senate uh, through much of his tenure, uh, he would go to the American people, lay out the case, and create the pressure to get what he needed. I think Biden's going to have to do that. And frankly, uh, as again, as you noted, I've been saying that the first 10 days are definitional. I wouldn't mind at all if Joe Biden did that tonight. Well, you know, there's a huge divide in America right now between the people like you and me who can work at home on their computers and the working class people, many of them people of color who have to go to work, who work driving trucks and at factories and at stores, stocking grocery store shelves. And those people don't have much of a choice. They need the money. And there is this crucial intersection that Biden is just beginning to take action around that's so important, which is getting OSHA, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, to enforce workplace safety rules that protect workers from exposure to the COVID virus. Uh, OSHA under Trump, of course, didn't do anything to protect workers, especially from COVID. There's been no enforceable standards like requiring that employers provide masks, uh, requiring six feet of distance between workers on, for instance, packing house assembly lines, no serious investigations of, of companies or uh, sites, plants where there have been big outbursts of the of the disease. You might think ordering the Occupational Safety and Health Administration to enforce safety and health rules would not be a big deal. But unfortunately, it is. And it looks like Biden is getting started on that. Yeah, it, it's stunning that that this would even be up for debate. This is something that uh, Eugene Scalia, the Secretary of Labor, was was asked to do back in the spring 
of 2020 as the pandemic was starting to, to take off. And, and it's, it's a plea that was made by uh, Democratic senators and others a long time ago. And you had resistance from, you know, not just Trump, but, but his key players in his administration. And it, it doesn't end there. There's another executive order that Biden has done uh, as regards public transportation that, you know, you've got to wear masks on public transportation. It, isn't it, I mean, I don't know about you, but it's amazing to me that we're almost a year into this thing and we're just getting that order now. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah. it's astounding. Bus drivers and transit, the transit unions that represent bus drivers, as well as unions that represent flight attendants and others, they were writing letters to Elaine Chow, who is Secretary of Transportation, and others saying, you know, use your authority here, use your regulatory power to step up and, and you know, make these protections. The Trump administration is, is you know, just, its record on this is so deeply, deeply immoral. What Biden now has to do is to get that infrastructure of government working fast and smart. And there is a lot he can do without Congress. But here's one of the conundrums. He, his cabinet picks, his secretary of transportation, his secretary of labor, these people have to be approved by the Senate. And it's not as if you can't start to get action on some of these executive orders, but what you desperately need is to have Marty Walsh in there at, at the Department of Labor, to have um, you know, Pete Buttigieg in at transportation so that they can you know, lead from the top in a big, bold way. And so we again have this intersection, right? Biden doing a lot of the right stuff, but a real need for Congress to step up. Two other key people, we need the Senate to confirm right away the Attorney General nominee Merrick Garland and the Homeland Security Secretary-designate uh, Alejandro Mayorkas. We need an Attorney General because he appoints the U.S. Attorney for the District of Columbia, and he's the one who's going to prosecute the people who stormed the Capitol on January 6th. And we need the Secretary of Homeland Security to launch investigations of domestic terrorists and white nationalists and neo-Nazis and anti-government militias, not to mention cyber terrorism and uh, immigration enforcement. Those are two very urgent needs we have uh, right now. And yet we have tremendous resistance from Republicans in the Senate. Ron Johnson, the senator from Wisconsin, among others, had said, oh, well, I don't want to start approving your nominations if you're going to pursue uh, the impeachment trial against Donald Trump, <laughs> right? And it's sort of like, it's a trade-off here. I, I don't want to have account. I, I'm willing to give you some nominations if you don't demand accountability for the guy who incited insurrection against the United States. So your mention of January 6th takes us, of course, to the question of impeachment Monday this week, the House delivered its impeachment article to the Senate. The trial itself will begin on February 9th, about two weeks from now. Uh, you spoke uh, with Jamie Raskin, the Democrats' lead manager of uh, Trump's impeachment trial in the Senate. What's his argument about why this is necessary? Yeah, we spoke on yeah. the day that the House voted to impeach. And uh, as I think listeners are aware, uh, Jamie Raskin's son committed suicide uh, at the end of last year, a very traumatic moment. And Tommy Raskin is a brilliant young man who we remember as, as among other things, a, a very young Nation magazine contributor. Mm. Um, uh, you know, that weighed on, on Jamie Raskin. 
on the January 6th, he brought members of his family with him because he was going to be involved in this debate. And he talks about how they found themselves, uh, you know, literally sheltering in place with uh, people banging on doors 20 feet away from where they were, threatening, threatening them and, and their safety. And so, as he says, it was a it was a terrifying and 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 profound moment. And in that profound moment, literally, as he was sheltering on that day, Jamie Raskin, a constitutional scholar, started sketching out uh, in his own mind the argument for impeachment, a second impeachment of Donald Trump. And uh, Jamie Raskin is unapologetic and unwavering uh, in his argument that this impeachment trial must go forward and it must lead to conviction of Donald Trump. If you do not hold someone like Donald Trump to account for what he did for incitement to insurrection, when will we ever use impeachment? When will we ever use the power of accountability? And so this is such a critical point at which to assert the authority that we have and then a second argument that he makes, which I think is one that gets lost in the mix, is that the Congress of the United States is, should be the first branch. It is the branch that ought to be guiding government uh, at so many levels. We've moved so much to an imperial presidency that people don't even recognize that anymore. And so one of the things that Jamie Raskin talks about is to, the need to reassert the role of Congress not just in this impeachment fight, which he will be at the center of in the coming weeks, but also in the months and years to come, so that, that we don't end up in this situation again, where an imperial president thinks that he or she can do whatever they want uh, without fearing any kind of accountability. You know, your new piece in The Nation has a wonderful quote that I want to read that really explains the whole thing. The president of the United States summoned this mob, assembled the mob, and lit the flame of this attack. Everything that followed was his doing. None of this would have happened without the president. The president could have immediately and forcefully intervened to stop the violence. He did not. There has never been a greater betrayal by a president of the United States of his office and his oath to the Constitution. Now, it wasn't Jamie Raskin who said that. Who said that? Jamie Raskin does quote that. In fact, he's committed it to memory. That is a quote from Liz Cheney, the third-ranking Republican in the U.S. House of Representatives who broke with their caucus and voted for impeachment. She is, of course, the daughter of former Vice President Dick Cheney. I wrote a pretty nasty biography of Dick Cheney about <laughs> yes, 15 years ago. Um, and I never really thought that I would be in solidarity with a Cheney. But the fact is, as Jamie Raskin points out, Liz Cheney stepped up and did what every Republican should do. And that is recognize the high crimes and misdemeanors of Donald Trump. John Nichols on Joe Biden's first week. Read him at thenation.com. Thank you, John. Great to have you on the show. Great pleasure to be with you, my friend. One more thing. We've got a special deal on subscriptions to The Nation just for our listeners. For more progressive journalism and to support our show, please subscribe online. You can save over $30 a year on a digital subscription to the magazine and get unlimited digital access for just $14.95. 
to subscribe, visit thenation.com slash podcast subscribe. That's thenation.com slash podcast subscribe, one word. Again, this deal is only available to podcast listeners. So if you're enjoying the show, please become a subscriber. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books and recorded in Los Angeles at our Blythe Avenue studios. Our audio engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is The Nation's engagement editor. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Katrina Vanden Heuvel is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. You can find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com. You can subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts, at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or Pocket Casts. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.